Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guest for this episode uh, joins me over Zoom. Uh, it's a very warm book club welcome to Peter Gouldson. Peter, welcome to the book club. Hi, Eamon. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you know what comes next. We've sort of teed it up because all new guests get to tell us their 2000 AD origin stories. Tell us about, you know, your first experiences with comics and how long you've been reading the prog. Right. Well, I'm a prog one guy, I have to admit. I know, uh, a prog one <laughs> A prog one way back when they were drawing things on cave walls. Um, I think with comics goes back probably about four or five years before that, looking at the early 70s. My, my early memories are... Uh, of annuals that were bought for me at Christmas, things like Rupert the Bear and uh, Walt Disney annuals. Before I can read, I'm I'm looking at these things and I'm putting the sequential pictures together and coming up with my own stories. Probably, um, comics were a became a weekly treat. So I remember things like Wizard and Chips, um, Buster. Uh, the one that really sticks out is Valiant. Um, that was a mixture of action, adventure, and humor. And that's what really caught my attention. Um, I mean, reading histories of Valiant at that time, it said that it was in decline. Uh, the sales were down, obviously, but try telling that to me because that this was really magical experience to read strips like Kelly's Eye, Raven on the Wing, Janice Stark, and in particular, the artwork. Obviously, this is before I can read. So the artwork of someone like Francisco Lopez really, really caught my attention as a very, very young child. His ability to portray something as there was high stakes. There was something at stake with those expressions that he got on those characters' faces um, that really caught my attention and drove my imagination, if you like. So that was a huge influence. and. Uh, on my childhood reading. A little bit later on, I was Mighty World of Marvel was a, a title that grabbed my attention. That all started my first experience with Marvel would have been issue 20. Right. Which introduces a character, which we'll talk a little bit about later on, Daredevil. Spider-Man had been in that title with the Hulk and the Fantastic Four. He'd gone off to get his own title due to his soaring popularity and daredevil took over so mighty world of marvel 20 was my first introduction to superheroes innately silly idea now in adult life but at the time was was uh was something special and daredevil in particular that cover there's the hulk and there's the thing on either side of the the circus hoop and daredevil bursts through the paper introducing daredevil in a wonderful um, cover that I later found out was drawn by the great Jim Starlin. Oh, right. Um, this was like love at first sight. This guy was so cool. <laughs> and um, I was jumping on right at the beginning because they were reprinting Daredevil number one from 1964. So that had been Stanley and Bill Everett. So I was jumping on right at the beginning with this guy and and he became a hero just in the way that John Pertwee was a hero of Doctor Who at the time. They were both my heroes. Um, really caught my attention. And that went on for a blissful 12 weeks before uh, Daredevil was unceremoniously kicked out of the comic because the Hulk got 
two strips instead of one. Not that I'm bitter now, Eamon. No. 50, 50 years later, it's not as if I bring it up on a podcast or anything like that. But uh, God damn him, the Hulk had two stories and the devil didn't have any for a little while. Was but that, he did come back. Was that because he was he got the TV series at the time or am I still a bit early for that? that no, that's much too early for the TV series. I think the TV series was more late 70s. Yeah. This would still be 73. Right. Um, it was just very popular. The Hulk was an extreme is an extremely popular character. Was then is now. Um, they decided he should go for two stories instead of one. Daredevil had to make way. Balance was restored. <laughs> I think early the following year, Daredevil came back, and that classic lineup of Hulk, Daredevil, Fantastic Four was back, and that was great because the artwork then was Wally Wood, uh, John Romita, and especially Gene Colan. In black and white, those black and white reprints, Gene Colan artwork, just absolutely fantastic. So Mighty World of Marvel was a, a mainstay, if you like, mainly because of Daredevil. Um, but Marvel UK themselves, I mean, they were expanding rapidly in the US as well as here. I think at one point in 1975, they had something like seven weekly titles. There was no way I could get all of those I'd be quite ruthless with my uh, purchases and there was also a lot of British comics that I still enjoyed and still loved pocket money was tight so I was quite ruthless and um, had to pick and choose so Mighty Marvel might have stayed but I remember getting uh, Warlord um, I was a Warlord secret agent Battle uh, I remember having conversations in playgrounds with kids about the Rat Pack that was a huge Huge strip, monster fun, which was fantastic because of those bad time bedtime stories from Leo Baxendale. Absolutely incredible level of detail in those panels. Um, made a huge impression. Buster, which was a mix because it was, although the humor strips were great, it was really I was buying off of the Leopard of Lime Street, and then Action, Bullet. Um, and then a bit later on, the prog, which I was very ruthless. I would I would pick up these titles and I would drop them like a stone. I'd have to because money wouldn't go that far and there'd be new things coming out. The prog, I remember, lasted. I bought the first issue and I'd, I'd probably bought it for maybe the first 30, 30 or so issues before I dropped it and juggled other things around. But then I picked it up a little bit later Um the autumn of 1978 had a wonderful Dan Dare cover by Dave Gibbons, Prog 81. And I've stuck with it then till well into the well into the following decade. And that, that was a mainstay. The prog was was something else. It was those those full play page splashes that you got and its attitude. Yeah. It just stood, it just stood out from everything else. And it was incredible. The 1970s themselves. I think was, I'm biased, I know, because I was growing up then, but that was an incredible time for, to be buying these British comics. Um, Marvel UK had a, has a, still has a reputation of being, you know, almost as if it didn't count because it was just reprints. Well, you know, try telling that to the, the five-year-old who bought the Mighty World of Marvel number 20 or got, got it bought for him. Um, and, there, and there was so many good titles around. My one regret would be, which managed to put right later on in life is you just couldn't buy girls comics. No. You know, 
growing up on a council estate, I'd walking home with a copy of Misty, I'd have probably been beaten up. <laughs> um, but luckily, later in life, you can go back and you can look at those wonderful collections that, you know, uh, Rebellion have done and those Misty collections and and to appreciate what was going on there. Boys comics and girls comics, there was a clear dividing line at the time. Um, they're just comics. And it's great that, you know, you can go back and miss them. But it was such a good time, Eamon, to be buying comics. And I read histories about um, the 1970s declining sales and the violent years or whatever they want to call them. But it was a great time uh, to be buying British comics. And there's creators that were around, uh, amazing creators, writers and artists. Um you know, and having waxed lyrical about the 1970s, I know we're going to talk about something from the 1980s. <laughs> well, let, let's jump us forward then, because we're going to stick with British comics. We talked about a few titles for you to come on the book club with. Of course, you know, we've done quite a bit of stuff from the Prog's early years. So you came up with an interesting choice from the early 80s. Tell us what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about the Marvel UK title, a very short-lived title called The Daredevils. Uh, which featured uh, a couple of interesting characters and creators. Um, yeah, Marvel UK's The Daredevils from 1983. So ran from, as you say, January to November 1983. Only 11 issues. I've got rather tatty copies sitting on my desk in front of me. Edited mm -hmm. by Bernie J. And issue 11 was her last um, work as an editor for marvel uk i think she did come back and do some work for them later on but this was there's a sort of goodbye bernie in, in issue 11 i noted um so you you know we've said it's an interesting choice for the book club to talk about a short-lived marvel uk title monthly title from 1983 what was it particularly that made it stand out for you why you chose it for the book club the Daredevils is part of a, a more of a time in British comics, I think, where just the amount of talent that was on display was, in hindsight, quite astounding. And I don't know if we really appreciated at the time, if we appreciated that fully. I mean, to put things into perspective, you've got, um, I mean, the prog is still going great guns. I grabbed a, if, just to digress very quickly, I just grabbed a random copy from 1983. It's prog. 308 from around March 1983. So you've got the first installment of Skiz, which isn't Alan Moore's greatest moment, some people would say, but it's an important milestone. It's his first ongoing series, I think, for the prog. Uh, there's the debut of that. And you've got, following straight on from that, you've got uh, a Tog's Time Twisters, which is Alan Moore again, but it's the Reversible Man. Oh, yes, a classic which is an absolute classic. I remember reading it at the time and thinking, wow, this four-page story has got, you know, it, it's clever, it's funny, and it's so poignant. Just an amazing bit of work. You've obviously got Dread, which is John Wagner and Carlos Esquera, and it's just amazing. Um, you've got a, it's a Invasion of the Thrill Snatchers, but the, Bellardinelli art, which, you know, his artwork over all those progs at that time is just sums it up, really. It's just fantastic artwork. And then you've got Rogue Trooper by Jerry Finley Day and, and Cam Kennedy. So the progs going great guns. And you've also found this area, there's Ace Trucking Company, and there's going to be not long till a ballad of Halo Jones and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's, 
a full pelt of the golden era as far as as far as I'm concerned. So you've got the prog, you've got things like Warrior. We'll talk about Dead Skin in a little bit. That title is just chock a block full of talent. Um, again, it's something that didn't last very long. Uh, it lasted a few years. But when it was at full strength, it was amazing, the amount of talent that was on display in that magazine. You've got things like um, Escape, Paul Gravitt's Escape, which is more of an underground feel. So you've got the likes of uh, Eddie Campbell's in Escape and you've got Hunt Emerson and you've got uh, Phil Elliott, who I was lucky enough to work with on a comic strip recently. Just amazing talents in there. And you've got Bless the Marvel UK, who are really still known for their reprints. But to rewind a little bit, they, they've started to do other things. And the story of the Daredevils really has its origins maybe in the Marvel Revolution of 1979 with Dead Skin. I know, yes, because I my initial thought was, oh, this will be another Dead Skin title. Uh, and yeah, when I was looking yeah. up the details, I realised it was Bernie J. But yes, Dead Skin yeah. had already sort of uh, had his sort of, you know, revolutionised Marvel UK in a way. Yes, yeah, so the, the Marvel Revolution of 1979... Um, I was there at the time. I've been reading, Mar reading Marvel UK since earlier 70s. And if I'm brutally honest, I hated the Marvel Revolution. Um, I think Des Skin's greatest contribution came later on after he'd left Marvel in work with Warrior. But credit where credit's due, um, there were some very good things that happened in the Marvel Revolution. I hated the fact that the weeklies had changed. They'd become a um a, a very thin bland uh cop tried to copy typical uk anthology titles and the artwork was shrunk and it was crammed in and they had two or three pages each and it was all done for a good reason it was done they were running out of inventory they were running out of things to reprint um and it was cost-cutting exercises because there was money to be spent elsewhere but at the time i i detested what they did to what became Marvel comic and the Spider-Man comic. Um, the monthlies to me looked a little bit bland and samey, the, the kind of standard desk in covers with the, the borders down the side and the um, boxed in pictures. The in-house ads were just played on and on the same ones month after month, week after week, you know, all seemed a bit samey. However, there were some very good things that happened. And one of those things was Hulk comic, which Dead Skin introduced British talent into the Marvel UK universe, if you like. There was an amazing strip called Black Knight, uh, an amazing strip called Night Raven. People like Steve Parkhouse and uh, John Stokes involved in Black Knight and Steve Parkhouse again and David Lloyd with Night Raven. A very young Steve Dillon was involved in a Nick Fury strip. When he I think was 16 or 17 years old, I think, wasn't he? Very, very young Steve Dillon, indeed. Um, I think he had Steve Moore and Dave Gibbons do the very first Hulk strip in that very first issue. So there was a real effort to get British talent involved in possibly the first time. That was amazing. And then a little bit later on that same year, there was the Doctor Who Weekly which did the same thing. Those strips in that comic, um, you had Pat Mills and John Wagner and Dave Gibbons on the main Doctor Who strip, Iron Legion, 
fantastic. And also probably more interesting even was the backup strip there, which was looked into the world of Doctor Who uh, without that character of the Doctor involved. So you looked at the the enemies or the monsters and there was, I think, Steve Moore and David Lloyd was involved in some early strips as well. So really interesting things going on. Um, I think Des Skin may have left Marvel UK around about the spring of 1980. Right. Um, and Paul Neary um, took over and began to change things uh, again. Now, that was that was interesting because stuff like, I think, Doctor Who Weekly maybe took a step backwards slightly, actually became a little bit more juvenile briefly before it found its place as a, as a monthly, um, which is still ongoing now. And, and the weeklies changed. They changed for the better. I remember picking up uh, things called Marvel Action, which had Alan Davis's first, or one of his first, um, professional works, maybe the first, if not one of the first. He did the cover to that first issue of Marvel Action. And being a Daredevil fan, there was a, a weekly title called Marvel Super Adventure, which had Gene Colan reprints, stuff that I'd seen before in Mighty World of Marvel, but they were full reprints. The whole issue was reprinted. That Gene Colan artwork was seen as it was meant to be, in my eyes, black and white, not the panels weren't shrunk or crammed in like they were in the early days of the Marvel Revolution. This was just full-blown reprints, the full-length Daredevil stories. Uh, very short-lived title. I think it lasted for maybe 26 weeks, but that was great. That was all to do with Paul Neri. And then in the monthlies, things became very interesting. Um, I think Bernie J was the editor of a lot of the monthly titles. They'd inherited uh, a title, Marvel Superheroes, from Deskin, which was... Uh, just a continuation of the old Marvel comic, the weekly comic. I think it started at issue 353, just carrying on the numbering from the old weekly. And it was a little more than a reprint title. I think I had Avengers, maybe Miss Marvel. But around issue 373, um, I've got it in front of me, the banner here. It's here, number one of Marvel's New Direction monthlies. Um, very little New Direction in it, to be honest, but there's an interesting um, article called Inside Comics, which begins, which is basically, a, um, amongst other things, it's, it's a vehicle for Paul Neary to um, promote what he's hoping to achieve. And what, what he's hoping to achieve is basically a full-blown Marvel UK universe. Um, right. Marvel UK, for me, gets a little bit of a swag around this point. It's really interesting. They want to do something different from the American mothership, if you like. They want to do something British. Um, and the intention is that they yeah, create their own kind of universe. They do that a little bit later on um, through two strips. Um, the Time Smasher strip, which is in Rampage Monthly, and the Captain Britain strip, uh, which is in Marvel Superheroes. Now, two new strips, three brand new creators, if you like. I think Time Smasher would have been written by Paul, Paul Neary, drawn by Mick Austin, right. who new to the scene. And the Captain Britain strip, 
was written by Dave Thorpe, um, brand new to Marvel UK. He was, I think he was on the editorial team. And Alan Davis. Yes. So two new three brand new creators. Uh, nothing if not bold. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this is around about September, October time, 1981. So let's jump forward slightly then to early 83, because um, we have to get to Daredevils. Tell us what titles, what stories and contents you've got in, the, in these sadly only 11 issues of the Daredevils. Sadly only 11. So the actual strips, as far as uh, the, the, the comic content is concerned, we've got Daredevil, um, the Frank Miller reprints. And we've got Captain Britain, which is a continuation of Alan, what became Alan Moore's um, baby, along with Alan Davis, from Marvel superheroes. And there's also some Spider-Man reprints from way back in the 60s with uh, Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. So they're the three main strips in The Daredevils. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting title to me that quickly gets its own identity and is part of that time, as I said, from everything else that's going around it. The energy that seems to be in the air at that time just just fed off each. I think titles fed off each other. I know Daredevils would um, promote Warrior, for instance, and I know Warrior would mention Daredevils in their editorials as well. It was almost like there was something in the air, and they were. It was a magical time, uh, I believe, for, for for UK comics. So yeah, those are the strips that are in there. The Captain Britain strip is the probably most interesting. I say that as the hugest Daredevil fan in the world because of what had gone before slightly. That would, uh, the Dave Thorpe and the uh, Alan Davis launch, if you like, in September 81 was, I'm a huge fan of it. I really do love it. But it's different from when Alan Moore came along. Alan Moore comes along, I think, in issue... 386 he does the last page of a a five-page strip and from then on i think there's a couple of installments of his in marvel superheroes and then it disappears and it's relaunched again in, in daredevils in issue one of the daredevils as you say so we've also got those spider-man reprints from the 60s they start running frank miller's uh, daredevil then there's text pieces. The uh, Night Raven will appear later on in text stories written by Alan Moore and by Jamie Delano. Uh, and there's also there's lots of other content. There's, there's articles the, about comics. There's reviews of fanzines. There's the Comic Mart articles. Um, it's, as you say, it's not just a reprints magazine, is it? No. I mean, to me, it's almost as if they've been given bernie jay's been given the usual pittance for a, a budget yes. and gone and said, go, go ahead and produce them monthly and what she's come up with is the best of what america has to offer at that time which is frank miller's daredevil and the best of what the uk can offer and that's alan moore alan davis captain britain plus this identity 
that this magazine, because I'm calling it a magazine, not a comic. You know, there's a debate later on about in the letters pages, is this a comic or is this a magazine? It's It's got its own life for 11 brief issues, and Alan Moore plays a huge part in that. It's not just him, um, but there's a lot of him in this. And this is, if you like, Alan Moore and Alan Davis, sorry, Alan Moore and Frank Miller, both well-known in their own way at this point, but years before they both went on to mega stardom if you like through dark knight and watchmen and they're both in this comic or this magazine and they're both working the magic and it was just a, a magical thing to, to witness and to read um the articles we touched on those it's almost as if bernie j managed to bring out the best in in alan moore and alan davis because it's clear that they are willing to go the extra mile for her. We mentioned the, the editorial and things in the last issue, and there's, there's an amazing letter by Alan Moore, written by Alan Moore to Bernie J. Sorry to see her go. But they were willing to go that extra mile for her and produce this extra copy at probably very little cost, because for probably once, one of the few times in his career, Alan Moore was having a great time with editorial. He got on with Bernie J. Uh, he respected her and he had a great working relationship with her. And that's brought out. It's as clear as day in, in the Daredevils. Uh, and you can see that in the work that he's done in the articles and, and the extra work that goes on. So it's amazing content for this, uh, this, as you say, this magazine, we'll call it then, the Daredevils. The amazing Spider-Man reprints from the 60s only last for four issues before the fans, yep. uh, I think, say in the letters page that, you know, we've seen that before. We want something new. Um, I'll get to asking you about Miller's Daredevil in a moment. Captain Britain is at this stage of the famous Alan Moore and Alan Davis story that became the Crooked World or the Jasper's Warp story. Uh, here in these early issues, he's getting recreated by Merlin. This is Alan Moore doing his sort of signature move in a way of tearing apart a hero and then rebuilding them. Yeah. And later on, the special executive are going to turn up at the Fury, of course. You know, the infamous Fury is going to arrive. Um, we have done this classic Alan Moore and Alan Davis, Captain Britain on the podcast before. It is one of the all-time great runs on a kind of character though for marvel uk isn't it it's amazing um i'm not the hugest captain britain fan i mean i remember picking up the weekly back in 76 and wow this is in color and quickly realizing that this wasn't anything remotely british it was following a, an american template i think there's a certain charm to the origin uh, quite like the first few issues featuring, I think it was Hurricane, but it quickly faded. It quickly became something else, and it was it was not remotely British in any shape or form. Uh, once the Captain America and the Red Skull have turned up, it was it was game over for me, really. Um, but yeah, once the, the relaunch that came, I mean, credit to Paul Neary and, and Bernie J here because they are really pushing for something different. The Dave Thorpe, Alan Davis, Captain Britain is certainly something different. Um, I remember reading that very first instalment. So much happening and thinking, what the hell was that about? But there was something there. It was some, there was a germ of something there that was very, very interesting. 
as much as I like Dave Thorpe's writing, you can see the join where Alan Moore joins that last page in uh, that, that issue. He has two more installments, and then he's into the Daredevils and a rag, a bone, a hank of hair, which is the first installment in that first issue of Daredevil. One of the joys of, of reading these 11 issues is seeing the artwork of Alan Davis just progress so much and him becoming a wonderful, wonderful artist. Um, that first issue way back, the, the Dave Thorpe relaunch, I think there'd been an error in terms of the size of the boards that Alan was using to draw. Right. And I know Paul Neary had to adjust things and spread things out. I think he did them on the wrong size board. So they had to adjust the panels and had to move dialogue along. As part of the, the surrealness of the strip, if you like, for the first few installments was that it had to be juggled about. Well, he's come on so much. And those few issues in Marvel Superheroes, but especially during this period in the Daredevils, because the storyline will continue after these 11 issues, it will go on into uh, A Mighty World of Marvel, Volume 2. Um, the artwork even then is is great, but these 11 issues, you can really see him develop uh, as an artist, and it's an absolute joy to, to read and to, to witness, if you like. Yeah, Captain Britain is... Um, Alan Moore does his usual thing, as you say, of breaking everything down and putting it back together. So... Captain Britain had been killed uh, at the hands of the Fury, amazing character, the Fury. And he's brought back in this installment and will go on to have uh, very interesting twists and turns. There's so many interesting characters. Saturnine is a wonderful character. The Fury is a wonderful character. Mad Jim Jespers is, is an amazing character. Um, and, and the special executives, they come along, who have their origins actually in Doctor Who backup strips that Alan Moore did. Um, they're amazing as well. It, the whole thing's a joy. It really is. It's, as I say, it was amongst the best that the UK could produce at the time, al um, along with the best that America was producing. And in many ways, even though I'm the hugest Daredevil fan, as I say, this was... This was something that was, you know, we can do just as good as the, the US. This is this is Captain Britain. Look, compare it to Daredevil. It's just as good, if not better. Daredevil's got the cover there on that first issue. He's right at the forefront, but just behind him is Captain Britain. And if you look at the, the headlines to the, the byline, it's Captain Britain is mentioned first. And it's his strip that leads the way in the actual comic or magazine. So it's... It's something that they knew was special at the time and they were pushing it as if to say, you know, this Frank Miller guy, he's great, but look what we can do as well. So Captain Britain, as you say, fantastic. Uh, a wonderful era with the, you know, the two Allens at almost their sort of 80s peak on this stuff. Uh, the memorable villain, the Fury, uh, Jim Jaspers. Um, when I did the podcast with Dunk way back very early on, I think it was the first episode where I did allow my guests to stray off the sort of 2080 piece and we did the uh, the uh, the Fury storyline. And then, of course, right. I realised so many people at the same time were um, in awe of the character, the Fury, had great memories of it. So many people told me, you know, oh, yeah, those stories were great. Now, let's get to Frank Miller for a moment uh, and Daredevil. We are reprinting in black and white... From pretty much when Miller starts on the title, um, 
somewhere in the sort of one fifties of. Uh, um, yeah, or... it's actually issue one one five nine is the first one that's reprinted. Um, Frank Miller jumped on the previous issue. It was just continuations, the the conclusion to a a previous storyline. And he come on as as artist for the last one. That was Daredevil, uh, 158 in May 1979, and the Daredevil started to reprint from the following issue. Daredevil was a bi-monthly thing at that point, so it came out every two months. It was it was on its last legs. It was the next step before cancellation. Nobody was buying this book, and Frank Miller came along uh, first as artist. And then eventually as the writer and artist and turn the whole thing around. Um, as I say, I've been a huge fan of Daredevil for years. He's always still is by far the most interesting Marvel character for me. And it's Frank Miller himself summed up the character years later in an interview I, I read somewhere. Um, you know, how many char- how many heroes are defined by what they can't do? So, you know, Superman can fly and leap tall buildings and spider-man can spin webs and stick to walls and whatever the hulk's the strongest whatever on earth iron man's got all that armor batman's got all that money and all those toys to play with daredevil he's blind he can't see and that's his defining characteristic and that's what makes him so interesting and frank miller saw the, that and saw the opportunity to do the kind of stories that he wanted to do which was kind of this hard-boiled noir uh, storylines that didn't normally fit into the superhero genre. Superheroes didn't particularly interest him in a way, I don't think. Um, so it was a match made in heaven. And he came along and turned this title around. I mean, at some point in the near future, I think it's competing with X-Men for the top-selling title, certainly the top-selling Marvel title. Um, so he's done that. He's made his mark. Um, and as I say, you both go on, along with Alan Moore, go along a few years later and make an even bigger mark. But this is where it all begins. And uh, Daredevil stories here. I think the first one in the Daredevils, and I could be wrong, but I remember reading this stuff at the time. And I don't remember before ever reading about phrases like um, the devil of hell's kitchen. And there's a page there, and I've picked it out later on. as page 25 was the first issue um midnight the witching hour but it isn't the witch that prowls hell's kitchen this night it is a devil a grim and sightless devil you know it's just him prowling along going off to the pier to meet the bad guys i don't ever remember seeing the phrase hell's kitchen and the dead devil comic before that or a mention of a devil and that becomes the miller trademark with this character a lot of lazy people describe it as a poor man's batman but then there's no comparison with the two characters, really. Batman's more about vengeance and Daredevil's all about justice. Uh, Miller could see that, and there's chalk and cheese between the, his treatment of this character and his later treatment of, of Batman. But yeah, this is where it really all begins for, for Daredevil and for Frank Miller. And interesting you mentioned Batman because, of course, you know, Daredevil and Batman, probably the two superheroes that Frank Miller's best remembered for. And also another comparison that springs to my mind is... You mentioned that Daredevil had gone bi-monthly, which was like a, you know, was a Marvel thing that, you know, this is close to cancellation. Um, it's similar to Alan Moore being given that failing title Swamp Thing by uh, Len Wein a year or two later, isn't it? Um, 
You know, they've got <laughs> they've got a new talent. Put them on the book that's uh, failing and see what happens. And Frank Miller produces first in his artwork and then later on, as you say, with his plotting and writing. Uh, we've got to mention Klaus Janssen's inking as well. Um, Absolutely. This amazing sort of New York Hell's Kitchen, as you said, a noir story. This is when it becomes grim and gritty. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, just tell us a little bit about some of the content of the stories that featured in this run of 11 issues. So as we go along, Miller's credited as penciler, as you say, Claus Janssen, amazing inks. No other inker would have suited him at this time, I don't think. Amazing artwork. Roger McKenzie is, is classed as the as the scripter, the, the writer. But Miller's influence grows and grows and grows. Roger McKenzie had been writing it for a, a few months prior to, to Frank Miller joining. There's no way uh, Roger McKenzie, who I think is a great writer, would have come along with that concept of Hell's Kitchen and the devil just out of the blue. He, he's They're working together as a team. Miller's influence is there straight away. You have this guy who's surrounded by corruption in a New York that's that's gone to pop, basically. Um, and he's the one beacon of of good, if you like. Daredevil as a character is so interesting because he has all these faults and he's often makes the wrong decision and his his love life is terrible. But he's essentially a good man. I mean, Matt Murdock is a good man. And what Miller does amazingly well is portray this good man amidst all this corruption and you have uh what comes out of psychodrama between himself um an old villain of his called bullseye a brand new character um electra and an old spider-man villain called the kingpin and they are introduced gradually and the interplay between those four characters is what plays out over a period of months with, with a somewhat tragic ending but yeah, the Kingpin's out to get Daredevil because Kingpin can buy anybody he wants. He runs the city, but he knows there's one man he can't buy, and that's Daredevil. And the theme of the, the stuff at the time was, was violence. He got a, a quickly, Frank Miller himself got a name quickly for violent content. I don't really buy that because he's just doing violence in a realistic manner. If you look at the old um, Spider-Man reprints that may have been in the Daredevils even, but certainly any of them around that time, you've got Doc Ock turning up every other month and then bashing each other out. But there'd be nearly so much as a nosebleed, whereas if somebody gets punched in a Frank Miller Daredevil comic, you can see the blood. It's just being realistic. Um, so, yeah, he's treating it realistically. He's showing that this world is violent and this man has to use violence to get through it and, and be good. Um, and that's what's different about Frank Miller's Daredevil. I think towards the end of the run at Daredevil's, it only just scratches the surface. I think the last three issues, and maybe he takes over as writer with the Electra issue, I think in issue nine. Then there's the bullseye, a bullseye issue he's reintroduced in 10. And then there's the first installment of probably one of the greatest Daredevil stories. There's a three-part Kingpin story where he introduces the Kingpin turns him from this kind of B-grade Spider-Man corny villain into this dark gang lord. Um, and I think only the first issue of that is reprinted in the Daredevils, the final issue of the Daredevils. But yeah, it's an amazing achievement. 
Um, as a long-time Daredevil fan, you can imagine my joy at reading this all those years ago. Um, and the Daredevils manages to capture it. The black and white reprint. Some artists don't suit black and white reprints. Gene Colan is one that does. And luckily in this, Frank Miller is another one. That work is, is just as evocative in black and white as it was reading the original, the original American colour comic. Well, that's a good prompt to remind ourselves that this is all black and white printed on newsprint, except that we get a uh, a two-page glossy poster in the sort mm. of centre pages each issue. So we've got the Spider-Man reprints. We've got Captain Britain by Alan Davis in black and white. And then you've got, as you say, Frank Miller's black and white noir New York Hell's Kitchen stuff. What do you make of the sort of the artwork throughout the 11 issues? Well, the artwork for Frank Miller is amazing. The artwork from Alan Davis is amazing. There's a real sore thumb here, and it's the Spider-Man reprints. It just doesn't doesn't fit. And it's obvious from the first issue that those... Frank Miller's stuff is probably, what, it's about two or three years old at the time. Obviously, the Captain Britain stuff is new, and this Spider-Man stuff is from way back in the 60s, and it just seems so old-fashioned. It's the... It's strange to think because you'd have thought Spidey would be the big pull for a, a title, the popularity of the character. But as you say, Spider-Man quickly disappears from the Daredevils because the real sellers were Captain Britain and Dead and the Frank Miller Daredevil. Yeah, and it's almost like they knew that from the start. If you look at that first um, cover, there's Daredevil right at the front. There's Captain Britain just behind, and Spidey's way back in the background. Yeah. It's almost as if to, you know, there, there's obviously a budget there, and the reprints. Uh, are there for a reason i think the daredevil comic itself the page count increased after a time so they were able to jettison the spider-man stuff and for a little while they had the backup doctor who strips that introduced the special executive that were reprinted from the old doctor who monthly as it was then uh, for a little while before i think the daredevil strip expanded there's obviously a budget involved and there's a reason for them doing things but yeah, the artwork, Miller, is it just gets better and better. Alan Davis, as I say, the real joy of this, this comic for me is to see Alan Davis grow as an artist. Uh, and the Spider-Man stuff, yeah, it's, it's had its time. I mean, Spider-Man is a character, God bless him. I, I think everything, is all, everything you need about that character for me is in those early Stanley and Steve Ditko's uh, issues. Um, as much as I love John Romita and, and later stuff, there's a lot of nostalgia involved in reading this stuff, but even the films predominantly play in that sandbox that Stanley and Steve Dicto um, made. There's one or two things that have interested come along since, maybe Venom and things like that. But for me, um, yeah, the, the, the Spider-Man stuff was very quickly jettisoned in this comic for a reason. It looked old-fashioned. It looked out of date. And the Miller and the Moore stuff was of now if you like um and and it was the, the comic or the magazine was all the better for it just having daredevil and captain Britain in. i'm i'm glad that you've said about the progression of uh, alan davis's artwork because on captain britain you do get to see him become the alan davis that we know and love the early stuff you can see there were a few you know uh sort of like beginners for sort of mistakes and as you say it's interesting to know that he perhaps didn't get the boards right for Paul Neary and all that but he very quickly becomes the fully accomplished Alan Davis that we know and love and uh, 
once he hits his stride on Captain Britain, he just produces spectacular black and white work. Oh, it's so good. And it looks so good in black and white. Um, I've got a lot of time for black and white. Um, that's the comics that I grew up with. Um, a few strips that I've produced myself along with some great artists I've pushed to be in black and white. Um, yeah, I mean, colour has its place. I remember discovering my very first American Marvel comics and seeing this lurid colour. Um, and somebody like Gene Colan's artwork was almost like a little bit of a letdown after seeing it in black and white in the in the British reprints. But Alan Davis here, it's amazing, the, the progression. Um, and even after the Daredevils and as the strip goes into the mighty world of Marvel and, and various other places, it gets even better. I was almost going to cheat and pick a, a grail page from uh, the mighty world of Marvel, but I resisted. I stuck to the Daredevils. But it, there's this good stuff in there from, from Alan Davis as well. It's just, yeah, as I say, the one of the real joys is seeing how his art has moved on from that very first instalment uh, way back in Marvel superheroes. As much as I love it, uh, there's no comparison with, with the artwork. Um, we'll also mention, or I will mention, that there's also Alan Davis does some illustrations for the text stories for Night Raven when that turns up later on. There's also some David Lloyd black and white Night Ravens in there, which are great as well. Um, we'll also perhaps mention that in issue eight of the Daredevils magazine, um, even while Frank Miller's Daredevil is running, they still found space to put in the um, rather famous parody that Alan Moore wrote, The Dower uh, Devil, which I think was one of the earlier published works or, of art by Mike Collins, I believe. Yeah, uh, four pages. I mean, this, this, this to me is um, part of the... There's, there's a swagger to Marvel. You've got, there's a swagger to the Daredevils. There's an attitude. Um, that says, look what we can do. And it was a revelation, especially for Marvel UK. And as you say, Grit um, featuring Dower Devil, the man without a sense of humour, um, Alan Moore writer, Mike Collins artist, Mark Farmer inker, Bernie J editor, Steve Craddock letterer, a four-page um, satire of Frank Miller's Daredevil. And if you're familiar in any way with Frank Miller's Daredevil, it's extremely funny. <laughs> and the panels themselves take the cue from panels in the in the original comic. I mean, when, you, when you're satirized like that, you've made it. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not a piss take, if you like. This is, this is a satire, so it's, it's saying you've made it. Um, I think maybe some Daredevil fans might have been a little bit upset with it. I don't know, but I wasn't, and I just thought it was extremely funny. But it was part of that attitude that um, Daredevils had and Marvel UK had uh, at this point. You know, they were willing to try this stuff and say, you know, this, this American stuff is great, but look what we can do. Uh, and, and Grit's a huge part of that for me. And, uh, yeah, I think it's some of the first work my Collins, and it looks fantastic, and it read—it's so funny. It did uh, ruffle a few feathers in the um, the letters pages, I noted. Um, yeah, yeah. But we I should say <laughs> we should say that Alan Moore was a huge fan of Frank Miller's work on Daredevil, and I we know that. Well, yeah, 
And we know that in particular because of an article he wrote in the very first issue of this magazine. Yeah, and one of the th- again one of the things about the, the Daredevils is is the text and the articles and things, and it the very first one, some amazing stuff written in a Marvel UK magazine about Marvel, and one of the things, uh, the very first one, the importance of being frank. So Alan Moore's basically saying he thinks Frank Miller is great. He wants to thank him because um, it's it. The success of Daredevil to him is proof that actually the good stuff can sell because he's beginning to think maybe it wouldn't. The stuff that he does like, um, he goes about on about uh, Neil Adams and Dead Man and Jim Sterenko and S.H.I.E.L.D. This stuff never really sold in its day. But Frank Miller's Daredevil did. And he publicly thanks Frank Miller for, for proving him wrong so the good stuff can sell. But what he's also doing at the same time, in the pages of a Marvel UK comic, is basically saying that Marvel for years have been crap. <laughs> um, they haven't been up to much at all. So here's somebody that's come along, something that's worthwhile, and, and thank you for that. Some of the other articles um, are just as interesting, <laughs> considering that they're in pages of a Marvel UK um, comic. Um, there's an article about Stan Lee, um, blinded by the hype, uh, an affectionate character assassination. <laughs> also by Alan Moore. Also by Alan Moore, um, which is basically saying, I loved Fantastic Four number three, which is the very first Marvel comic. Um, I love some of the stuff that came a little bit later on, but again, you know, nothing that's come since. And this, he's got a particular grudge about what's called the illusion of change, that these writers that have come along since are just a watered-down version of Stan Lee. And Stan Lee's still overseeing all this and is quite happy to see it go the way it is. But again, he's, he's slagging off Marvel comics in the pages of a Marvel comic, which is quite, quite something. Um, there's an amazing three-part article called Invisible Girls and Phantom Ladies about sexism in comics. And if you put that into context, this is 1983. Yeah. So Alan Moore's writing about the awful treatment of women in comics, whether it's professionally or in the pages of the comic. So whether it's, you know, Batgirl checking a compact mirror before she goes into battle or Lois Lane trying to trap Superman into marriage, you know, just the awful way that women are portrayed. And then the lack of professionals, of female professionals in the industry. And he goes on to mention a fair few that, you know, he sees worthy of mention. An amazing article for its time. Um, so it reprints uh, panels from DC Comics in a Marvel UK title, which you would have thought, you know. Yeah, so he, he does that and he it, it's promoting, if you like, DC in the pages of a Marvel comic. There's, there's other things where they say, I can't remember what issue it is, they actually say that DC are actually printing more interesting stuff than Marvel these days, <laughs> which is, again, in a Marvel UK comic. So, yeah, it's it's almost it's like a law into itself, Marvel UK at this point, and it's summed up in the pages of Daredevil, and it's so refreshing. And the articles throughout the 11 issues are fantastic. As you've mentioned, you know, Alan Moore's contributions, he does an article about music and comics, he writes mm-hmm. fanzine reviews, he writes letters for the letter pages... Um, you've got yep. work in there by Frank, 
Frank Plowright, who was a big figure in, you know, fandom back then. Uh, I think Paul Crevette might be in there. There's um, some Steve Moore stuff. Uh, there's an awful lot of content in Marvel UK in the Daredevils in this time period. It was a meaty read. Um, it was a meaty read. And there was, uh, Steve Moore was there. He did some really interesting articles on comics from the Far East. Yes. It was, uh, Chinese and Japanese and, and Hong Kong comics. There's, there's things like, I think Lou Stringer has his first cartoon um, published in the pages of Daredevils. I think it might be issue seven. So Lou Stringer has his first break in, in professional comics there. Um, the whole, uh, the, the things like Grit, um, the fanzine reviews, as you say, I think Alan Moore's love affair with Eddie Campbell's work manifests itself quite early on in the pages of Daredevils. And obviously they go on to, to great things uh, with From Hell. But yeah, um, it, it's all there. And there's even a disclaimer. I'm trying to find a disclaimer. I think it's in issue five. Bernie J basically says, you know, Marvel Comics are not responsible for any of the content in this that might be said by Alan Moore. It's because of it. I think it's uh, one of the articles about the the sexism in comics and he touches on some taboo subjects. But it, she's not saying it as if to say this as a disclaimer. It's more like a badge of honor. You know, she's proud of the fact that this is being said and done in the pages of a Marvel UK comic. And when it all comes to an end, there's a real, um, almost a sadness with the people involved. I mean, I've got in front of me issue 11, and it's already been noted in an understated way by Bernie J on the front page. What you're holding here is the last issue of the Daredevils. Um, further news is that I'll be disappearing from Mighty Marvel. This will be my last editorial, so without getting too slushy, I'd like to wish you all the very best for the future. Typically understated from her. So it's down to Alan Moore and Alan Davis to try and say a proper goodbye. Alan Moore has a letter printed in the, in the, in the letters column. Um, without Bernie, there wouldn't have been a Daredevils and extremely doubtful there would be a Captain Britain, at least in its present form. You see the Daredevils, things like the Daredevils don't happen just like that. Even ordinary comics don't happen just like that. And the Daredevils is a little bit more than an ordinary comic. And he goes on to say, working for her, and um, uh, I could mention her insane offer to pay for some of the original work out of her own pocket when it didn't look like the budget was going to stretch far enough. I mean, this is amazing. This is people who uh, obviously enjoy working together, producing the very best that they can at that time. And, and the result was this is these amazing 11 issues. Um, Alan Davis does a little um, four-panel four cartoon saying goodbye to her with the character of Cobb Webb from the special executive. Uh, yeah, it's it's the end of an era with uh, Daredevil's number 11. And the Captain, Britain, the Captain Britain strip, as I say, continues in the mighty world of Marvel, and it, it reaches a great conclusion. Uh, and the work is great. And the Night Raven tech stories, I believe, make the transition as well. But the but it is a, a the end of an era, I think, with that last issue of the Daredevils. And I'll mention a couple of other things from the letters pages. Uh, I've been reading some British fanzines from this period recently, and the letters pages in those could be very, um, uh, let's say, frisky. So they could be very bad tempered. Yeah. I think the letters in in the Daredevils are on the whole a much a much more cheerful bunch. 
But also, I loved from this period that they would print people's full addresses um, in the letters page. Um, and as you say, right. and even in the last issue, there's a chap saying, you know, if anybody wants a pen pal, here I am, here's my address. Um, it was a kind of gentler uh, period. It was, yeah. And the I'm trying, I'm trying to find the um, the example where it could get a little bit frisky. I remember earlier on with Paul Neary receiving feedback to the the Captain Britain strip. I mean, this wasn't in the pages of Daredevil. This is probably in the pages of Marvel superheroes. The, the, the initial feedback to that strip wasn't great. People bemoaned the fact that it was only a few pages long and it was, it was only a few pages long for, for cost reasons. Um, but there was a general unease about the actual direction of the strip and where Dave Thorpe in particular was taking it. Um, and Paul Neary met that head on in the letters pages. It was, um, he was basically saying, I've got a quote here. He's, it's almost like he's frog marching the audience along with him in this. He's saying, um, we're going for a more realistic feel and it's throwing a small percentage of readers who are just tending to think in cliches. Hang on, pay attention and join us in our excursions into areas not yet entered into by Marvel USA. That's not something you normally read in a, in a Marvel UK comic. He's telling everyone to pay attention and get with it and um, you know, get on board with what they were trying to do. And you have to admire them for that. And Bernie J obviously picked that and, and ran with it with, with the Daredevils because that, that, that whole attitude that they had, they were taking that audience with them on a journey. And it was an all-too-brief one, but it was, it, was, it was quite something while it lasted. And I'll just mention that it also features um, a sort of like one-page feature in many of the issues of early artwork by, and we got to see early artwork by some of the oh. big names. Yes, yeah, indeed. I mean, that was another joy of that, was to see that page that had early artwork from the likes of Gary Leach, uh, David Lloyd, Steve Dillon, um, David Gibbons, Alan Davis. Wonderful innovation, just seeing that stuff that they produced as kids, along with some more recent stuff. That was an absolute joy. Promotion of those British talents was, was a huge part of Bernie Jay's remit, I think. And there was also those posters. I think you touched on that earlier, Eamon. Those posters, those coloured posters earlier on. The first issue had an amazing Daredevil poster by Gary Leach. Wonderful. Yeah. I remember a particular, it was a wonderful poster of the special executive by alan davis and there was this is also this um it was almost like an advert that they were asking people to drop along to the local news agency and they'd replace it with a signed copy if we did such a thing and it was a it was almost like a promo um poster and it had daredevil and captain britain and the special executive on for display purposes and it was you know uh, the daredevils have been a long time since comics have been this good uh, but it's such as good as such as this. And and they were right. You know, it has been a long time since they were as good as that. And they and they knew it. They knew it as well. There was a real swagger to it, uh, which is adorable. <laughs> so obviously there's a question, and we'll get back to the artwork and grail pages in a moment, Peter. But before we do that, there's a question about the 11-issue run and the fact that it didn't stick in a way. Um, despite its popularity, you know, in a um, slightly, you know, more grown-up comic book audience, 
it's a similar question with the 26 issues of Warrior, I guess, which is why why these titles couldn't carry on. Because it does seem that the Daredevils, as you say, was a much more grown-up, interesting combination of articles and artwork and news stories and reprint stories um, mm. with, you know, the uh, quite considerable involvement of Bernie Jay and Alan Moore and people like that. Um, any ideas what you know what happened to it as a you know why it didn't last beyond 11 no and i mean warriors um demise has probably been better documented really it was um there was a falling out with the creatives there was there was always distribution problems i think from the start with warrior uh, that early promise just died out which is a real shame the daredevils i I don't know whether it was just um, simple economics, it just wasn't selling, or there was internal politics at Marvel UK. There was a decision made to merge it, and, and that was enough for, for Bernie Jay to kind of turn her back on comics for, for, for a while. She, she, she walked, she wasn't consulted on that decision, I don't think. It's just a real shame. But sometimes, Eamon, the, the best shooting stars burn brightly before disappearing, so there's a lot to be said for that, and I, for one, am thankful for those 11 issues and, and what they brought to the table in that period. If it had gone on, would it have kept up that high standard? Alan Moore certainly was on the verge of of going on to Pastures New, wasn't he? It was probably during this run that he probably got the call from DC Comics. It would have been during 83, I should imagine. Yeah, because he started it, in 84, I think, or thereabouts. Yeah, very early 84, wasn't it? I know the, the anatomy lesson is uh, dated February 84, I oh, think. Right. And he, okay. he, he did the issue before that. So he'd have got the call at some point in 83. Um, so he'd have been off, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so he was a huge part of this. Having him there alongside those Frank Miller reprints, who, who for many people, they wouldn't have got the American original uh, issues of Daredevil. So Frank Miller, you imagine coming across Frank Miller and Alan Moore for the first time in the same comic was, was quite something. And the grim and gritty stuff, as you touched on earlier on, it was um, really came to the fore about probably three years later in 86 with Dark Knight and Watchmen. And they've both been tainted with introducing the grim and gritty superhero uh, as if they're to blame for for the stuff that came afterwards but it's hardly their fault that there was a lack of originality and everybody copied what they were doing but anyway it was as you say a bright flame that lasted just just under a year um but we have got these wonderful 11 issues to talk about um obviously there's no particular collection of the daredevils you can find the captain britain stories the daredevil story even the spider-man story fairly easily uh, i think i've got the night raven stories collected on the kindle sadly a lot of the articles they would make a good collection in themselves a chance to read some of this stuff and just to remind ourselves when Alan Moore was such fun in you know such a big part of British comics and fandom. Because some of the, you know, not just his articles, but some of the stuff in here would be great to have in a collection, wouldn't it? It'd just be great to have a collection of that comic. Yeah, those 11 issues put together. You can appreciate uh, things on the... You can appreciate Frank Miller's Daredevil. You can appreciate Captain Britain um, on their own. And uh, yeah, I've got those things collected in, in various formats. Um, 
spread about the place, but to get them all in the one place with those articles, with those fanzine reviews, with those posters, with that attitude uh, in one place month after month, um, put all that together. And there's a little bit of magic there that um, is probably greater than the sum of its parts. So, yeah, um, it's a shame that people should try and hunt them down. I, but I haven't looked online for a while. I can imagine they're quite expensive, some of these uh, back issues. Starting Nick. to get quite pricey now, these Marvel UK yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah, and some crazy prices for some Marvel UK, um, well-loved Marvel UK issues that I've got, thankfully. Yeah. I know Captain Britain, um, I think the old weekly, is it issue eight that introduces his sister for the first time? Oh, right, Betsy Braddock, yes. Tony, crazy Tony Esmond has told me about that, crazy prices, because uh, that's where the X-Men's Psylocke begins, as it were. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> It just goes for crazy money, something that was uh, 10p at the time. But, yeah, there we go. Okay. Well, let's uh, – so there's no particular collection, sadly. The articles, it's probably easier to just hunt down the uh, eBay copies, although, as I say, pricey. Let's play an incredibly difficult and expensive round of the Grail Page game. <laughs> uh, we certainly can't afford, I think, any of Frank Miller's Daredevil pages. Um, probably Alan Davis's Captain Britain pages are up there as well. But let's give you all of the artwork that appeared in these 11 issues, including posters and covers. And I know you've got a few picks to talk about. Yeah. So to begin with, I just picked out a couple of covers. And there's the first one, obviously, that first issue, which is um, Paul Neary. Amazing cover. Just sums up the whole experience of coming across this title for the first time there he is my man daredevil leading the way captain britain but yeah it's just a great cover from from paul neary that's a wonderful thing i'd love to have that um and another cover i've gone for was the the final issue which is an alan davis um captain britain and and the fury um which at this point for me Alan Davis was just off into the stratosphere um, from those early days, not so long ago. And, and that's just a great evocative cover there of, of the two of them. I wouldn't say battling it out because it looks like a battle as well and truly won by the Fury. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great cover. There's also, um, I know you highlighted to me earlier on, was the, the poster from issue 10 which is an Alan Davis Fury poster, which is amazing. Yeah, we're jumping ahead because that would be my grail page. Uh, That's yours. Yeah, you're getting the covers for issues 1 and 11. I'm going to take the Fury poster from issue 10 by Alan Davis. But yeah, as you say, I I mean, like like many of us, I love the character of the Fury. I'm always intimidated by it, but to see Alan Davis's rendition is wonderful. And we'll give you those two covers, a Paul Neary and an Alan Davis cover. And then you've got a couple of internal pages for us. Yeah, that's um, trying to find them now. There's a couple, is it, in the first issue? Uh, I know you've got an Alan Davis and a Frank Miller from the first issue, and I think you mentioned the Frank Miller page already uh, as page Yeah. Yeah, so that's the one where the the devil and hell's kitchen thing comes to the fore for me. Um, on that same issue, as far as Captain Britain goes, I've chosen um, a page page ten in the magazine, which is 
it's the point where Merlin's bringing him back to life. Um, there's a few panels there. I just look at that and I remember seeing that and I thinking, wow, you know, comparing it to what had gone before, even in those very first Alan Moore issues, I think Alan Davis, the work can look a bit cramped at times, but here it's just, he's just letting himself go, spreading out. And it's just amazing. And the, the progression of this man as an artist is amazing. And that really stood out at the time. And there he is being brought back to life. So I would love that as a, as a, as a grail page for, Alan Davis. That's the famous Let There Be Life page of Merlin and Captain Britain from the story A Rag of Bone, A Hank of Hair in issue one. Uh, Indeed. We'll give you that for the virtual art gallery. It becomes yours. Nobody else can pick it. Uh, Lovely. You've also got in page 25 Frank Miller showing the devil of hell's kitchen running across the city. You've got some classic Marvel New York water towers, the aerials, all that stuff. And there was another Daredevil page from later on from by Frank Miller that I know particularly caught your eye. Yeah, am I being greedy now picking all these Grail pages because the expenses, <laughs> you know, yeah. Frank Miller original artwork. Um, yeah, so page 46 in the comic from issue number 10 is, it's part of the Daredevil 169, so it's, introduced, it's reintroducing Bullseye. And it's just a page where Frank Miller was... He was trying to get to grips with the character and he was never very never very keen on the radar sense and he wanted for, to, for himself more than anyone else kind of define the limitation limitations that Daredevil had uh, as regards to his own radar sense. So he has him sat perched on this roof almost in a kind of yoga meditative state and he's, he's trying to sift through what he can hear, what he can feel trying to identify his quarry, if you like. So he's just sifting through the different sounds. New York really comes to life, all the different things he can hear. And he eventually gets there at the end. And it's just him sat on the roof in three panels that have their own little bits that are broken down as he hears the sounds of New York, trying to hone in on what, he's, what it is he's after. I don't think anyone had really taken that amount of time before to try and sit down and work out the devil's radar sense. You get the odd panel here and there of him, little pings going off and those little waves of radar coming out of his head or whatever. But this is Frank Miller sitting down, working it out for himself and working it out rather well. Um, and you really get to grips with how Daredevil's powers, if you want to call them that, work. And it's a, it's a great page. It is a fantastic page, beautifully composed, quite a bit of Daredevil in silhouette, almost like a gargoyle on a New York tenement building. Um, so wonderful stuff. So uh, two Miller pages, uh, an Alan Davis page and an Alan Davis cover, a Paul Neary cover. Yeah, you have run up quite a budget for the uh, Mega City Book Club. That's quite, cause it's quite a big budget. I much appreciate it, Eamon. <laughs> well, I'll post all these images on the various social media in the week after this episode comes out um, so people can see what we're talking about. Um, yeah, what a wonderful period for Marvel UK, the Daredevils, and this great uh, little run of 11 issues of this magazine. Um, fantastic, Peter. Thank you for picking it. Very interesting one. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Now, we're going to move on quickly. We're going a bit long, but we're going to move on quickly to guest projects. You've done some writing for the Comic Scene magazine and website, I believe. 
Uh, yeah, the comic scene magazine is um, way back. I started be a Tony Foster before it was um, newsstand. It was subscription only, and Tony was doing themed issues, and I picked on a, a horror theme that was coming up. Horror is an interest of mine, and I've written about uh, From Hell and and the Dracula UK Marvel UK. Uh, comic and from that i i've lost count how many articles i did for the comic scene magazine when it was newsstand on, on various things uh and then later on the the history of comics uh which was tony's as as various uh, articles i've done on that it's great to write about this stuff the stuff that i grew up with and comics that i love uh, i try to keep it all positive uh, don't write negative things i don't write about stuff i don't like it's not like it's the comics journal um so it's always a pleasure to write this stuff. It's a lot more uh, interesting to actually write comics. Um, and I've started to do that. I did um, the comic scene annual with in 2021. I did a short four-page black and white strip uh, with a great artist, Luke Hayes. Um, wonderful art he did. It was his first work. Uh, a very primitive naivety to his artwork that suited that storyline that was that was worked out well i thought um and then last year tony did a he, he resurrected an old fanzine of his atomic uh and i had a couple of of strips in that um i did one with uh, uh another newcomer uh rebecca elise we did a short story called special delivery she did some wonderful artwork for that um really stood out on the page very distinctive uh raw artwork that was great again in black and white uh, and I was also lucky enough to do some work with the great Phil Elliott. I did a, a short story with him, a one-off called TV Dinners, in the same issue of, of Atomic. Um, and as I say, it's great to write about comics, but what I do want to develop from going forward more is, is writing comics. So that's what I'll be looking to do in the future. Excellent stuff. And I will try and put a link in the show notes for this episode on the website to your writings at Comic Scene, the ones that are available online. And I know, just going back to 2000 AD, we know um, we are ostensibly a 2000 AD podcast. You've got a particular interest in Dan Dare, and of course, I very recently have covered the second volume of Dan Dare's Adventures in 2000 AD. What do you make of Dan Dare's sort of um, uh, appearances in the early progs? Well, I'd say I picked up the first prog, and uh, it lasted maybe 30 issues before going back to it. Dan Dare was always the, the kind of uh, the hook that, that the launch was was put on really it was you know he 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 fell between two stools he's never going to appeal to the to the eagle crowd who you know followed him from the 1950s and 60s um and he didn't fit in with the rest of um 2000 AD really he was he was on his own and I must have something for the underdog because Daredevil used to be a bit of an underdog um, and there's also a thing about the initials of DD, obviously. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so Dan Dare was um, those early ones. Um, they introduced the Mekon from about issue 11, 12 as well. Lardinelli's art. It's just fantastic. He had a little bit of a break and he came back. Um, as much as I love Dave Gibbons' first work on, on that when he came back, I, I did drop the prog around then. But then when I came back, it was a dander Dave, Dave Gibbons cover, as I say, that brought me back into the fold, Prog 81. And after that, I bought it for years. Dander, again, most disgruntled to find out he was no longer on the coloured centre pages to begin with. But by that point, Dread was, um, Dread took a while to take off. 
Um, but by that point, Pat Mills and the Cursed Earth and um, all that amazing Marne and Bolland artwork, it was it was it had just gone into the stratosphere. And poor Dan Dare was was left to uh, almost die a slow death, I think, in the prog. Um, yeah, he was uh, an early hero in a strange way, but only in a kind of underdog sense, I would say. Was, um, my main interest in those early progs, but very quickly after I, I jumped back on in late 78, it was clear that even more than ever, he was um, not quite fitting into the everything else that was going on around him. Wonderful Dave Gibbons artwork. Um he came back and in Prog at 100 and that first instalment in Prog 100 of the, the Servant of Evil storyline was astonishing. Um, but then it quickly, to me anyway, it just dwindled into slow motion, if you want, compared to all the other stuff that was going on around it. So, yeah, interesting character, Dan Dare. That other 2000 AD reincarnation of him anyway. I've got a huge fondness and nostalgia for picking up those early Progs. Um but yeah, it was it was never going to work for Dan in uh, 2018. Uh, fantastic stuff. Well, just mentioning an underdog, I'll take you briefly back to America's DD Daredevil, and just ask you quickly uh, the Netflix TV show. We've talked a little bit about Daredevil, Bullseye, Electra, and the Kingpin. Were you a fan of the Netflix TV Daredevil? Netflix, yes. Um, there was the movie earlier on that was a bit hit and miss. The ben Affleck, yeah. Yeah. Um, the director's cut of that is actually a lot better than what ended up on the cinema. Um, but yeah, it was it, it wasn't great. But yeah, the Netflix show um, seems to pick up on a lot of the themes that we talked about. So there was the essentially a good man, but he was flawed. Um, the violence. He's surrounded by violence, and he is himself violent in having to deal with that. Um, the friendships uh, and the relationships he has, and the eventual obsession with the with the kingpin to try and bring him down. It was all caught very well, I think, by that Netflix show. Um, I'm glad it only lasted the three seasons. I know there was an outcry to to keep it going, but all good things come to an end, and. Um, Three seasons was absolutely fine. Uh, trepidation about what's going to come with Disney. There's going to be another Daredevil show. It's titled Daredevil Born Again, which is one of the great storylines. Um, but I'm under no illusions that the Disney Daredevil is going to be anything like the Netflix Daredevil. Um, and it's all enjoyable stuff. But the for me, it's the comics that are where it's at. Um, uh, and those original comics are what really stick with me. Everything else is a bonus. Okay. Well, as you say, slightly nervous about what Disney are going to do with it, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, but the Netflix stuff um, and how it picked up on Frank Miller's work, yeah, that was great. Um, fantastic, Peter. Thank you for giving up your time this Sunday afternoon to talk about um, some of the, the golden age of Marvel UK. That's good. Thank you for having me, Eamon. It's been a pleasure. Great stuff. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links, including links to Peter's work, at megacitybookclub.com. 
Uh, follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon and the 2000 AD forums for updates about episodes and about the artwork we've been discussing. And email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you want to come on the show yourself and choose an interesting bit of 2000 AD or British comics history to talk about. And that's it. Until we are passing judgment on another great book, it's a goodbye from me and... It's goodbye from him. Wow.